Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 161 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. And today we welcome Tracy Wilson from Dahlia Seed. You may also know her from her other bands, Souvenir, Ring Finger, or Positive No. If it is a no, let me explain. Tracy is an icon in the emo scene because she made her own path and her own rules on how to make it. Tracy and I talk about her many bands, jobs, and stories over the years that intertwine the icons of the scene and the little ones that deserve a second look. It was a free-flowing interview done here in my apartment here in Nick City. It was really enjoyable to listen back to, and I hope you guys enjoy. We need more Tracy Wilsons in the world. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. If you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo and learn how you can support the show. This is episode 161 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Tracy Wilson from Dahlia Seed. hung these posters but they should be fired yeah so tracy's in my apartment right now and i put up some posters and they're not level and there's maybe 10 people that have been in here total with like i even, feel honored I know, well <laughs> i mean like it's a studio apartment there's only so many people that can <laughs> but i like that you have stayed true to your cause there is no way you'd walk in here and be like what is this guy all about there is there's no subtle no hint of your music choice it's no Zero. It's it's a lot of Jimmy pretty, World. It's a lot of Jimmy World. <laughs> that show, the two dollar bill show, was crazy. Um, Jack Black was there. Um, it was just one of those like weird New York City moments, um, right? That a friend. I remember those. Those were fun. They happened before the internet. Yeah. There was the internet, but not the internet. Right. I don't even know how I found out about shows. Actually, that's not true. I had an email list. Right. Because when I worked at Caroline, I kept like this huge, like list of what labels were sending me about what was happening in the city and right. then I would email blast friends and then that list grew and grew and grew and I had like I don't know a thousand people I was emailing every week like <laughs> here's what's happening at brownies here's what's at the pyramid right oh yeah 
Who knew that there would be just website clicks away? You could do this. Or the village voice, getting the village right? voice. That I, was also like the going to that certain mm-hmm. whatever the three pages, four pages that had all the listings. And it was so easy to miss stuff like the CBGB's ads. You'd be like, you know, seven lines in and tiny print, like the one band you wanted to see. Or it'd so. be a giant band. Like, a, like you'd be like, wait a minute, REM? You know, or some like right, showcase thing. You're like, how did I miss that in the CBGB's like flyer? Yeah. <laughs> And then it would be really crazy for like new music seminars or CMJ because it would just be like right. every band you've ever wanted to see playing in a four week uh, four day window. Like right. uh, how do I how do I pick between the Pixies and Bad Brains all in one day? I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yes. No more problems. It's all on the internet. We can just watch it. We can just watch yeah, online. I, I don't really need to leave my couch anymore, nope. which is great. <laughs> Because we don't have as many of the New York moment type things in Richmond, Virginia. We have some. That's okay, but though. But not as many. That's okay. We have a veil, so take that, everyone. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's the first time I got the mic at a show. Really? Yeah, I was in high school or college. No, probably high school. I don't remember. Um, but I remember singing um, a, a song with Tim, um, like grabbing the mic and like screaming. You had a moment. I know. And it's gone. Tim likes his moments. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's I've tried to get him on. Really, he won't do it. Almost, he wanted to do it, and then he stopped responding. The po- it's it's weird. Some people they just have such an aversion to the word that I think that if the podcast was just called, you know, my desk, like I'd have everybody. Tom's desk. Yeah, yeah I'd have everybody. But okay, because- so come to Richmond. <laughs> and if you have battery packs for these things, yes. we will bring you to the woods where. Tim Hangs. I like that. And uh, we'll set you up on the river. All right. On the well, banks of the James. Let's get Cam. I need Cam from uh, Lazy Cane, yeah, by we, the way. We, let's let's sure. let's let's <laughs> let, let's be nerdy, okay? It's Cam from Lazy Cane. Yes. We just saw him a couple days ago. We oh, can cool. we can throw him into the mix. We can we can round them all up because we okay, are good. a small enough community where it would be very easy to make. And I think they would have fun. Oh, for sure. Most yeah. people, I think, when they do this, they have fun at the beginning. Well, at the end, I'll they realize I'll be the judge fun. of that. I know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, we got to go. <laughs> the ratio of Jimmy Eat World posters is threatening. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. So the, the, I know you've mentioned a lot of this stuff in interviews and stuff, but I still think going through it is going to be helpful. And so if you see me looking down, it's just my notes. You're just counting your likes and... and- <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I know you've got to be tapped into your social media. You need to know that, you know, Jeremy Enoch maybe liked this thing and shared it. Oh, he you. didn't. No, no he, he's not really on the internet. The last time I saw him, it was really cool. There's a lot of people all getting posters signed and there he's like, what's your name? Cool. Cool. And then I got up to him and he was like, what's up, Tom? And I was like, yes. I was like, see that everybody. And then I was like, what's going on with the podcast? Hashtag blessed. Yeah. No, but I was like, what's going on? Are you going to do the podcast finally? Because he's always said no for years. And so I, he, everyone leans in like, like a movie. They're like waiting to hear. And he's like, you're very persistent, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it? That was it. And I was like, thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. Hmm. So it's fine. He hates the name. Um, so I'm going to trick him somehow and like pretend. Everybody, that you know what? You need to get over it. Everybody calls different genres different things. So some people might say post-hardcore. Other people might just call it rock and roll. Right. It's, it's just, just a, a word. stupid word. It's just a word. Yeah. <laughs> it is the most maligned term that I've ever in- encountered. 
it's weird. Now emo is one of those words that like the most random person might actually have some sort of idea in their head of what that means. Like they understand that it's a subculture of not mainstream people. That's okay. Right. That's, that's a good base. I, I, I can live with that. Or they at least know a little bit more than the MTV. They might know that there's something <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. That's sure. happened. Mm-hmm. Certain people were like, no, it's a phase. I was into it for four years and I moved on. But some people are like, oh, I know there's like some other bands. Like, cool. A co- mission accomplished. And then they're jerks like me. I'm like, 30 years later, here I still am. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Have not. That phase that everyone was just like, oh, that's cute. You're in a band. Right. Little did I know this would be my entire adult life dedicated to this underground music thing. Right. Or. I mean, growing up in New major Jersey. Major label adjacent. Yeah. Let's be honest. Caroline. Right. We had some major label funding through the. Uh, oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it changed. So, right. It was like EMI for a while. And then we got bought out by somebody else. I think it was Sony. After It's gone through many. It's gone through a few. Generation. Yeah. Oh, Virgin, I think, was the original. And then EMI. Yeah. I worked for EMI at a time for a time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pretty interesting. interesting so spot. yeah, we were indie, but we all had major label funding anyway. So yeah, it's all connected. There was, it was, there is a separation. It isn't it, like, it's not like the A&R guys are telling the indie labels what to do. If that's what people think. Like, right, right. No, they're definitely its own world. We had our own subculture for sure, but still it takes money to make those things happen. Right. Yeah, I want to get to that. I think too the you growing up in New Jersey and having access to New York City is yeah. a crazy uh, leg up to learn and ingest when you're a sponge at a s- sure. growing up. I mean, starting at like grade school, like you know, just going in with my parents on the reg because they belong to every museum, and then my mom by like seventh or eighth grade taught me how to take the train in awesome. from Bergen County, and then I take that um you know it's funny i think it was like train to hoboken and then the path train in and then i'd get off at christopher street because it was the first stop right and then i had this like i wasn't allowed off this little grid and i would hit certain record stores and clothing stores and then go home and i think i had to be home by like nine o'clock or eight o'clock which is still pretty crazy for like being a kid totally so i had like if i got out of school at two something or three and I took the train I was here by 4.35 so you had like four or five so I had like a handful of hours to do my quick shot I think that would have blown my mind yeah and then uh, I was laughing as we were driving in because we had um, an exchange student senior year I just got my driver's license was it senior or junior Eh, whatever so uh, they had never seen New York City and they were leaving soon and they hadn't gone in yet and I was like you know what you need to see New York City you're from Chile or whatever right I'm gonna make that happen I drove in I took them to where do you go Tower Records of course downtown and (laughs) uh, it didn't phase me that wasn't maybe legal I think you have to be a certain age to drive in New York and I think I literally just got my license and was like I'll wing it I've seen my parents do this enough times so now when I drive into New York it's like oh like this was a pretty brave thing to do when you were 17 or 18 it's kind of scary now is uh, older person yeah uh, but uh, you know access to it's not just one record store it's right. multiple record stores multiple things multiple influences and being able to realize there's something more than what's being force-fed right uh the first 
stop off of Christopher Street, like three blocks, was Rebel Rebel. And uh, I had a, a business relationship that I'll explain in a second with them. But um, they were so kind to me. They treated me like a grown-up. I said, you know, I, I love Cocteau Twins or um, New Order, a lot of like British New Wave, gothy crossover stuff. And they would just pull records for me or be like, oh, hey, Tracy, the new, you know, Sugar Cubes 12 inches in or whatever. And they would have it saved for me. And then I could go to Tower or Bleaker Bob's for my shirts. (laughs) And, you know, there was like maybe four record stops I came to, but all like different styles. And I mean, I had the best education possible. Um, Gary from Ladybug Transistor was uh, working at Rebel Rebel and uh, eventually Anthony from Garden Variety worked there like later on. Um, so I don't know. That was like really one of the the greatest experiences of what a record store could be for a kid. Right. And then in Jersey, there was uh, Crazy Eddie's and I had two employees there on a bag. Hold on, let me take some water. Yeah, yeah. I told them I liked alternative music and they wrote like like 40 different artists wow. and I would How just, old were you? I was maybe in grade school so like 7th, 6th grade. No, to blow my mind. And it was like the, whatever year the Queen is Dead came out and so that was the first record I bought. And I remember like I would just check off one thing off the bag each time. I carried that bag with me all the time. I have it framed at home now. And it was like sitting in the car with my mom putting on the Queen is Dead record and being like, "What? Like the way it starts, you're like, is this a mistake? Did they sell me music? What?" Mm-hmm. It's like a chant, and it it would just sent me down a path that I was like, "What am I in for?" And I think that was my first lesson of like record store people can change lives. And then from that list, when I started to go to New York by myself or with a handful of friends, because who I don't know who else grew up like this. Like we had multiple parents who let us who let their kids come in <coughs> with me. Like, wow. how did we all shop together in New York City after? Like a sophomore year in high school. That's crazy. But we did. I just think the ingestion of stuff. I had two record stores. I grew up in Burlington, Vermont. Uh-huh. There's only two. Or there's like, there was one that was 40 miles away in the middle of nowhere that also had records. But that was it. And yes, there were zines that you would get or distro right. magazines. or. But it was like I couldn't get enough. And so I, I, it's almost like you had the internet. In a as person. A, as, a, as a city. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. and being able to pull in and then finding that punk is where I want to go or finding that, wow, this is it. Like, yeah. what was that moment when you realized like DIY or punk, like this is where this is at? I think it was probably Crazy Eddie's and meeting these two employees, one of whom looked kind of like Ducky. And then Ethan Maroulis was in Executive Slacks, which was a kind of popular goth band. Beautiful, beautiful goth guy. And I was like, whoa, you look like people I see in like Valley Girl, the movie or whatever. Whoa, there's, okay, so there's like other weirdos. Like Valley Girl was the movie that made me realize, oh, there are normal people and then there's like outsider people and I think I might be one of the outsider people. Right. Oh, okay, that's like one question mark answered sort of and then meeting other weirdos and then them being like, oh, there are many of us and here's the soundtrack here's where you can buy clothes that kind of go with this world. If you have an interest in the underground, 
let's it was like a choose your own adventure and then you met one person and they sent you down another path and then that kept going and so uh i think it would be the crazy eddie's employees that really like was my first aha moment after valley girl and then metal too you loved so much still do i think there's something about that energy release that kind of expel of uh, like energy at 110 blast i think that connects in that all of those scenes to some degree and I was doing what I, my first real job was at a record store in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey called Flipside. And is that the same thing as the zine? Different. Different. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I was the new music buyer, like indie rock buyer. How old were you? 17. And so I was buying from K Records, Kill Rock Stars. And I'd written letters first to sort of like make those connections because I didn't know how to do it otherwise. Exactly. So I'd go through Maximum Rock and Roll and be like, oh, Lookout has these records out. I better write them a letter and get a catalog. Write oh, them a, a letter. Number. Yeah. Let's say that again. Write them a letter. <laughs> I wrote so many letters to every record label possible, whether it was Merge or uh, SST, and then you, you know, Discord, and then you built a phone relationship. And then, and then they wrote back. And then they wrote back with phone numbers or maybe a fax number. My mom had a fax at the house. We didn't have one at the record store. So I would get some faxes at home. I love that. And I would pour through and then call these people. So uh, Alec Mackay and, and Amanda were my sales reps at Discord. And gosh, uh, Curtis at Sub Pop was my sales rep, and he was the one who discovered Sunny Day. He is also why I ended up moving to Seattle. We'll get to that. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, like everybody was in a band or like related to music at every one of these places. Right. So you learned amazing things from talking to these people. And you made the effort. I think that's the, you wrote the letter. Yes, they might have not responded to certain people, but they wrote back because they yeah. realized like, the, that little scene when they go there that band's gonna know that the yes. record's there because that used to happen the band would go to the record stores totally be I like, mean, hey I only have one record where's this other thing we built a whole community from exactly that and because uh, I went to school with two members of Rorschach um, and they were tied into Born Against like all of them when they put out new records would come to Flipside and they would tell friends and their friends and so you just accidentally built a world that was like what became Reconstruction Records and what, you know, Distros at ABC No Rio. We had that at Flipside. That's cool. Yeah. And then so what are other connections happened from that? Oh, but yeah. metal. So yeah, going but back metal, to that real quick. Right. Thanks for remembering. <laughs> um, so uh, because I was buying underground music, metal was a part of that. And we did CMJ reporting. And um, Kevin Sharp from Brutal Truth was my CMJ metal guy. And Brutal Truth hadn't like taken off yet. Right. And he was dating the woman in a doom band called 13. And so we would talk to each other about like new stuff. So just from being friends with him, I'd be like, oh, there's a new band called I Hate God. Better check them out. And then that would take me down a path. And so, I mean, to this day, we're still like internet friends. Cool. We don't talk all the time. But like he was really my gateway going deep into the metal world and i don't know it always stuck with me it's just it's still i don't collect it as heavily as everything else my what i collect now is kind of different than all the the phases i've been through like right. i've already collected my metal and my my emo and my punk and hardcore like i've i've moved on to collecting other things right 
format wise. <laughs> I still stream lots of these things, but the yeah. records I pursue different. But yeah, metal is still like totally a part of my world. I love that. I mean, the, in the, the shows were the, yes, every show is varied. There's different bands, but there could be a metal headliner, hardcore opener, emo band, right. like all in the same thing. And it just happened to be like, it's it, it, yes, people would maybe leave or come back, but it just seemed like it, it felt more like they're all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. It wasn't different agendas. Exactly. And I think... You know, we're playing some of the same venues, so the, those worlds overlap. And gosh, how many hardcore kids do we know that went on to be like in metal bands or vice versa? Like, it's not just um, like one directional. Like, I'm only going to be into metal. Like, how many metalheads do I know that love Bjork or classical music? Like, they don't like just one style. So people from other overlapping worlds would be in each other's bands, right? I yeah. mean, hell, Greg from Engine Kid who went on to be in emo bands like Galleon's Lap would end up being in Sun and running Southern Lord. Like Greg somehow started as like a straight edge kid, went emo and now like rules the doom world. It's possible. But there's those gateways, those entry yeah. points, like those two record store people that you met. Right. Like the first time you seeing those shows. I think those moments are really important and sometimes and the internet's amazing because it's how we've met and I've met thousands of people. But I think the, I don't know, there's something about being in it and being in the community and going to the shows or putting on something yourself. I mean, doing something outside of maybe a blog, if that makes sense. Like, right, right. Just being in it. Exactly. I think people think that you can be in it by just interneting, but it, it's something very different when you step into a, a venue or a record store and have actual human contact. That's where yeah. the real, the cool stuff happens. And the shows are still that. It's not like we've For all sure. got VR headsets on, like that <laughs> Portlandia episode. Uh, you know, we're still doing that. So I right. think that's still there and that's the opportunity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then f f emo stuff for you, f um, when you started your bands, were you conscious of that? Were you conscious of that word being associated with what you were doing or? You know, it's funny because working in the record store, I don't think I called Rights of Spring and Embrace Emo at that point. It wasn't till I graduated high school. So I graduated in 1990. And uh, in, I don't know, in I think 1990, I saw an ad in the East Coast Rocker which was like New Jersey music. Totally. Regular magazine or newspaper. And it said, looking for a singer into anything from Black Sabbath to Nancy Sinatra. And I saw the phone number was somewhere in Bergen County. And it was like, I've never been in a band. I don't know how to be in a band, but I want to know who these people are because that's cool. We're into like a, a wide variety of cool music. So uh, I showed up to the house and they were so curious about who this woman was that answered the ad that they had a couple of friends there. So it was a little intimidating rolling up wow. to somebody's house in a neighborhood in Bergen County and being like, uh, why are there like five people here? Because they're like, it, punk rock was still such a private club almost that like when you found each other, like I remember seeing a guy in a... Uh, a mud honey shirt at a gas station and I turned my car around and was like, hey, who are you? Right. You're in my town wearing a mud honey shirt. That's weird. I should probably know you. And like, we're still friends. So um, some of the people who were at this house to meet me, 
were not in the band. It was Danny Jarella from Underdog mm-hmm. had a, a band afterwards, and it was his friends who had put out this ad. And so I hung out, met them, went to one of their practices, and two of the dudes were like, hey, let's go on a beer run. I was like, I'm not old enough to buy beer, but I will watch you buy beer. And he's like, okay, this band is terrible. Don't try out for them. I'm going to work on something, and we're going to have a band. Just hang out. And they became like my best friends for the next two years of going to shows. Cool. So Chris Skelly was one of these people who ended up being one of the the founders. He is the founder of Deli Seed. And he and I went to like, he loves every kind of music too. So we might see Murphy's Law, a Super Bowl of hardcore, some sort of metal show, and then a bunch of indie rock. We might see Velocity Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, Super Chunk, Jawbox, whatever. We would see it all. And it wasn't till like 92 that we actually made the band happen. But at that point, I don't think we, we called anything like a specific genre per se. It was just like, we're so crazy excited about music that we're going to go to it all. Right. I don't think it was till, I mean, even when we first started, we were pretty more on the like jangle indie pop side. So I'm not really sure. I feel like after our first like closer to 94, 95, we realized like, oh, when I start yelling and I discovered that bigger voice and more anger coming out, like, oh, maybe, oh, that's why emo is like a a thing people call us now, huh? And then I dated somebody in 91. He was like my first serious live-in boyfriend and he made me an emo core tape. Really? Mm -hmm. You still have it? I do. And I've made a playlist since of these bands, but it included like Big Drill Car, Sam I Am, The Doughboys, but then it had a ton of Discord stuff too, like Grey Matter and Right to Spring Embrace, Fire Party. And um, Fire Party was really the first band with women in it that I was like, oh, this genre, like, okay, it's possible for women to right. do this. Like, you don't have to do more of like a twee, nice indie rock thing. And even though I knew like, L7 and Hole and the Lunachicks, Babes in Toyland were happening. I think Fire Party was the first band that was more like on the hardcore side or emotional hardcore that I was like... Or felt closer. Yeah, like, I was like... Ba- <gasps> Babes in Toyland, oh. like Elsa, that's huge. And, but it, <laughs> Not it, huge, you know what I mean? Like It was like a cartoon character, like their idea of feminism. And I mean, I definitely wore similar things like velvet dresses with barrettes and had lunchbox purses and wore like grandpa shoes or saddle shoes. Like there was an aesthetic of that time period, but musically it wasn't like the jigga jigga hardcore thing that I still like really liked. Nobody of those bands sounded like soul side, but fire party clearly had that ilk going for it. And I was like, Oh, maybe that's what I want to do. Huh? That gives me hope. And so I would like practice to a lot of fire party records in my commute from Hoboken to the record store in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. And that was like kind of how I figured out my outdoor voice, not just like a, the singer. I don't know. Women just aren't, I mean, for me growing up, I'm like a generation fresh out of Mad Men. Like I was raised to be a housewife and make cocktails and wow, I wasn't allowed to know about money. Like I was the youngest of six kids. They did not think that I was going to be a career person and maybe not want to get married and maybe not want to have kids. That's just not how I was raised. So it was a big deal to learn like, 
I can scream and I, I can talk about things that make other people feel uncomfortable. Like coming out of parents, my dad was born in the twenties. Like I had a very adult, like older dad. My parents were 17 years apart. And even though my mom was a feminist, she still was raised pretty much just to be a housewife, not make waves, which is cool. I, I, you know, whatever you want to be as a person, that's fine. Not to slack off moms or parenting or whatever. But I I don't think that really was ever her dream, but that was like, she didn't feel like she had a choice. Yeah. So for me to learn that I could really scream or do that, it was just like, no, that's like for other people. I think, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. I can sing in a chorus, but not that. Wow. Yeah, exactly. With a group, but not, not be the center. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even think I, yeah, I, it, I love music and it kills me that it never occurred to me to pick up a guitar till my first serious boyfriend and he had a guitar and was like, you can do this. If I can do this, you can do this. And so he taught me how to play guitar. Wow. Like, I wish it was like some amazing story that this, this underground panel of women took me under their wing and taught me all of the ways of being a cool feminist. But no, it was having the good fortune of really supportive band dudes who made me feel safe and let me try stuff. And when I failed, they're like, yeah, you'll get it. I mean, that's, I feel really lucky that I had that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think to the shows and going to those and there's an intimidation as a woman a lot of times. Oh, especially in the hardcore and metal world. Like for years it was stand in the back. Like, yeah. Can you take my jacket? Can you hold my keys? And I was like, exactly. Motherfucker. I want to be, I want to be up to- front. <laughs> Come on. Like it's, it's wild to think that that was just like an expected role at one point. Like, and I would definitely brave it and go stand closer, but then you would get targeted. So if you went to like a super, super bowl of hardcore or any of those like CB's hardcore matinees, like if you were a girl who dared to go up front, you were targeted. It was like, you had a bullseye on you and people would try to do crazy stuff just to take you out. I had, um, a DMS skinhead take me out at a lunatic show of all things with an elbow to my eye socket, wow. knocked me out cold. And um, I'm trying to think Theo from the lunatics was dating a revelation records um, artist, like into another, like who's the singer from into oh, another. Everyone's going to yell at me. I forget. I know. I know the internet there. Everyone's yelling. Everyone's right now. yelling They're at you screaming. right now. Like, it's fine. Damn it, that guy. He, um, Actually, I learned this years later at a lunch with Dave Walters in Seattle. Um, we were all sitting at a table and I was telling the story. And he's like, that was me. I chased the skinhead out of CBGB's and he got stabbed that night. Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, that little block now that has a John Varvato store where CBGB's is <laughs> was not different times. Not the nicest. I worked yeah. a half a block from there. My first job in New York City was a really? half a block. It was fourth and Lafayette. So Whoa. tower was kitty corner. Right. And then um, CB's was around the corner. So as like a 21 year old moved to New York, like just, and then Bowery was not. Oh, just trying to go to ABC, no Rio shows uh, could be terrifying. Yeah. It was way different times. So I, I feel like the, not only that, and I'm a white male. So <laughs> that's like, I'm not, I'm not scared or, you know, again, not right. Female going to those shows, having the intimidation, exactly holding the coat, like I don't know. I t- 
it just seemed like it was almost like your parents saying, be the housemaker. Yeah. The show was telling you, be Oh, it's in enforced back, everywhere. Go there or run the juice bar at the, like, I, but again, pushing through that and being able to, I'm in the front, I'm singing. Like, right. That was still fucking crazy. Yeah. Just even working at a record store, somebody like, Oh, Even you're the buyer? Just like what two you know? years ago, people would walk in the store and be like, can I talk to the guy that works here? I'm like, I've been working at record stores for 30 years. What the fuck do you want to know? Do you want to know how to put together a stereo? Do you want to know? Oh, you like Tropicalia? Okay, let me list 10 bands in that world. Like, Still, a million years later, people are like, oh, you can't possibly know anything. Like, are you his daughter? Is that right. why you work here? Are you his girlfriend or wife? Like, no, I give a shit about music. And right. that apparently was really weird. That was definitely weird. But I think to you, a few months ago, you mentioned like not having like a lot of playlists with female yeah. artists. And so there's sort of a separation. I know like it's very important to state that female fronted is not a genre. Yes. I get it. But for me, growing up in a very different time, when I saw Female Fronted, it was just like, oh shit, somebody like me, cool. It wasn't like, God, we're separating genres. And I know even as a female artist, I didn't, I didn't want to be in a girl band. I just wanted to be in a band. I really didn't want m- my gender to count. It, it didn't matter to me. The music but, should. Yeah, exactly, being an artist. But as someone trying to grow and figure out, just find other people like me, that tag to this day I'm still like oh cool but obviously like different generation it is a sensitive subject but in a different time 30 years ago female fronted was like seeing a flag planted in the ground that called my name to say like check me out right there's there might be other people like you and someone else in the crowd is thinking the same thing seeing for sure and I think those were the important things of being able to see that person play that guitar that maybe you walked by the yeah. record or the music store and thought you could play it. And now you saw your favorite band playing. It's like, it's those things that, and that again, going back to, you had to sort of, there needed to be this, like this yeah. separation of maybe a few feet uh-huh. <laughs> for it to feel right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Even to have fire party, like on the same coast as me, like when I looked at photos, they didn't look like the go-go's or something. They just look like, regular people who went to the same shows as me like they could be my peers cool like I don't know why it took that to like wake me up and then to literally have somebody I was sharing a home with to be like here's a guitar here's how it works I'm not gonna tell you how to play it just right. play until you find something that you like and sure enough and I had supportive friends who were like keep doing it. that's actually kind of cool I dare you to keep going and so like I played guitar I mean I still I've been playing guitar for like 30-some years now. Nobody knows that because I mostly just sing live. (laughs) But like, I don't know, I wrote a third of the Dahlia Seed songs. I now, for a positive note, like play bass or guitar when we write songs. But I'm just not the kind of singer that I can do both. So I don't don't have that like... I, I think there's something that wins people over when you're a woman who plays an instrument and sings. It's weird that like you're somehow not as much of a musician if you're just a vocalist. Live. Even if you did play it or that yeah. kind of thing, right? Yeah. Have you seen change? Have you seen oh differences? My God. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
So the cool thing about, so Deli Seed ended in 96. And then I did um, a quick project called Souvenir with John, who was in, um, John Aries, was in, hold on, what was, <laughs> with Greg Lido. Oh my God, I'm the worst friend ever. Kenny, do you remember <laughs> what? Meryl, yes. <laughs> By John the way, Kenny was ready. <laughs> he turned way before. He knew, yeah. He's my brain when I forget things. Um, so Meryl, and um, we, <laughs> we had um, William from Sunny Day was our first drummer. And this is right after he got kicked out of the Foo Fighters. And, and you were in Seattle. So at this point, I'm back in New York. Okay. I mean, that's... Like how I met William and that whole story is pretty crazy, but um, I don't know. Should I tell that really quick? Yeah. It's a good story. Yeah. So uh, summer of '96, I go through a breakup. I was in a very unhealthy, violent, just terrible relationship. My band breaks up. I don't really have a job. I'm working at Pier Platters in Hoboken, and a coworker uh, I just started at Caroline was like. I got a guy you should probably meet. I'm like, oh, okay. It's Blake. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I guess we'll we'll all meet for some beers. <laughs> we go for beers. That's fine. And um, I had, at this point, you know, it's been like three or four years since I moved from Seattle. I left Seattle like 95-ish. Um, and so uh, I, I date Blake for maybe a month or two. It's one of those things like, nah, he doesn't like me. And my friend was like, oh no, he liked you. You're going to hear from him. And then sure enough, I get a phone call. And a phone call. Yeah. And weird, like I'm meeting somebody who like his band had just broken up and it's like, we just watched the Jawbreaker documentary and I was like, oh shit. Like I did not know, like we were both like meeting at probably the worst time ever in both of our lives. Like had no business trying to hang out at all. Like, right oh my God, what a crash and burn. And sure enough, wow, terrible. But um, he he ghosted me and I'm at a new music seminar show for Blonde Redhead and Unwound. And I see Blake. And I was like, oh, you're alive. Cool. Hey, buddy. And he gives this like sheepish look like, I'm sorry, you know, like, Hi, I'm a fuck up. You probably know that from my songs. Like, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't want to be here. Meh. And so I hear that Unwound had car trouble and they're not there yet. And their guest list isn't turned in yet. So William Goldsmith comes up trying to get in. Can't because Unwound's not there yet to get him in. So I'm like, hey, William, what's up? We don't really know each other. We have a lot of friends because of Seattle. Um, you can't get in yet because Unwound's not here. And he's like, oh, well, all right. Let's go get a drink. Okay, and we went on a two-day bender, like literally blackout drunk for wow. two days, and uh, we became fast friends, and uh, I met my first husband on this two-day bender, because Barry, who was in the Van Pelt for a little while, he is now in Oneida. Yes. He was at, um, I don't know, some bar that we ended up at, and William disappears in the bathroom because he had like a meal that did not agree with them. And so literally for 45 minutes, I'm like, did I just get like, what is happening? Oh, wow. Cool. And you know, I wasn't like, 
there was no like chemistry with William that I thought like, oh, this is going to turn into something. Right. Like, no, it was just like, oh, you've been kicked out of the Foo Fighters. You were having a meltdown. Okay. We're just hanging out at this bar. And so in walks Barry. So we start, Barry and I end up dating and eventually getting married. And then we all become friends. And so when I lose Dahlia Seed and start Souvenir, William was the guy that we were like, well, he's got nothing going on. Like, of course, you just, you're going to call the dude from Sunny Day. You're going to start a band. <laughs> and, you know, uh, William was not in a place to make that work. So we had a couple different drummers, but it ended up being our, the Dolly C drummer for a while there. Cool. And um, then when that marriage tanked, I ended up in Richmond. And, oh, and Joyce from Scarce was also in Souvenir and... That was the first time I'd ever played with a woman before, and I was like, "This is amazing!" And she's one of the best player, best bass players ever. So, what was that feeling? It was incredible, like to finally share a stage. Like uh, I had become friends with uh, Rainier Maria, and I was like, "Wow, I love, I love talking to somebody who's like really in it too." Because I really, I didn't have very many lady friends in music. I know plenty existed, but some reason nobody ever thought to introduce us. So really, they were like my first, my first friends in that world that wow. like actually were making it. And I was like, oh, had maybe our band stayed together, this melodic hardcore thing would have actually like been better time. We were like a little ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. So it was like um, these cool ladies are are out here inspiring me, and and now I have a woman playing in the band with me, and this is such a pleasure. Like it's not competitive. Again, you're trained like every woman hates you and it's you're competing for the same things. And that that was such a lie. I felt so dumb for thinking like everything had to be a competition. Like totally wasn't. It was the most positive, sharing, awesome, learning, supportive experience. And um, I worked on a solo record for 10 years that had people from uh, like... Engine Down, Denali, Cave In, Isis, a bunch of people. But because it was a solo project, it wasn't like a normal Didn't band. Feel, yeah. So it was kind of dormant for like over a decade. And when Positive No started eight years ago, suddenly every show we played had at least one other woman on the bill. And it wasn't because, oh, there's a girl in this band. We better get another. It was like... It just happened. There, it just In just a couple decades, it was miraculous. And it seems so stupid, but it's like a relief to be in a room and not be the lone wolf anymore. Like half the room at least is filled with ladies who maybe are in a band, maybe they're working, maybe they set up the show. Like they're like on every level involved. And that wasn't the case just a couple decades before. Right. So it's, it's crazy how different it is. No, you could count. I could count the, the ladies or women at the shows. And now, I mean, just last night, seeing Saves a Day and Joyce Manor, um, Awake But Still in Bed. It was just cool to just see these pockets. And I, I tweeted, I joked that I was like, everything's fine. There's a kid that was probably born in 2004 here. <laughs> and that meant like yeah. it's continuing. Yeah. It's, it's moved on and everything's fine. I mean, there's there's a weird thing when you realize like, oh shit, this little pocket world of things that I never thought would outlive that moment in time suddenly is like a thing people care about. Like right. people are still talking about born against. Whoa. Like you talk about born against the way we talked about the germs or 
I don't know, whatever, like black flag. Like, oh, I accidentally was a part of a thing. And and now it's like it's influenced a new generation and it lives on. Whoa. Yeah. And there's this is like a continuum. Who there's, thought? There's people that there's a there's a writer at Brooklyn Vegan. He knows way more than me. And he's 10 years younger. Yeah. And I love that. I'll I'll ask him. I've actually emailed him recently. I'm like, do you remember this thing? And he remembers. And I just think the these the gener- kids with their young minds and memories. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> but it's 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 continued. And I think bands that you've mentioned, you know, so far, like they've stayed on, or uh, someone introduces them. Kind of like No Effects is the punk band that you just get introduced to, or yeah. Green Day, and then you start wiggling digging. your way through. I mean, God, just. God bless Kurt Cobain for his band shirts or Eddie Vedder. And people were like, oh, who are the raincoats? Who are Os Mutantes? Like, because they had liner notes that thanked certain bands or. I mean, you, I read. Shirts, like, that made a difference. Like, you read liner notes to discover. And I know this gets talked about a lot. Like, but the same still, way we talk about pre internet. It's been mentioned enough because I mentioned it last week with somebody. Kurt, like. He was a champion of all of this stuff. And every decision, there's a Danny Goldberg book, one of his managers came out called Serving the Servants. Uh-huh. And it's like a music industry nirvana story. Mm-hmm. And it's the other side of like Kurt calling him and being like, I don't want to make that decision because the kids or the punk scene might think X. Right. And as you saw the Jawbreaker documentary, it's a real the major thing. label record ruined a band. And everyone hated it. Now it's it's their best record. But so <laughs> Kurt was so conscious of that. Yeah. And I think being able for him to know that and put out that I love this band or I love this song or this band is cool. Like he was so conscious of it There's, when he should have just done what he wanted. Right. There's and, no <laughs> way any of us would be talking about the Vaselines. No fucking way. If it weren't for Kurt. And I think there were some of those champions along the way, but like that that was a really big deal. And and once you learned about the Vaselines, then you're like, wait, what else is happening in these other countries? And what bands do they tour with? Who else was on that record label? And then suddenly you're a fan of the Pastels or whatever offshoot. And maybe that brought you to Shoegaze and My Bloody Valentine right. or the Swirlies or, I mean, every scene has their variation of that, but... But going back to Rainer, yeah. I mean, they had the house in Madison that right. they would put on shows, and they when they're in New York, they were playing with everybody, and they were kind of moving up. Yeah, and had a lot of heat, and I think again that's an influence for people. You know, not only the punk, but also the members. Like, just it was a cool, I think, time. I think the little pocket communities that were built around house shows that like regularly built like did music events and had distros like they were building these like networks that all overlapped and it changed. I mean, it certainly it shaped who I was. I wouldn't have understood how to do the DIY touring thing without that intense network built through house shows and record store talking to people and writing letters and being like, you know, now that I'm friends with somebody at Lookout, I could say like, "Hey, where does where do you play? What what is the place that right. I should look into for a San Francisco show?" Or you know, uh, ebullition and learning. Like we ended up playing uh, the Exignota House, but it might have had a name. I can't remember. But like 
all of those little things. And then, you know, like Antioch Arrow or somebody would come back from tour and they'd be like, oh, you don't want to play there anymore. Or, oh, the Fireside Bowl actually is like, it's great. Right. You like, should You get you the updates. Yeah. And like <laughs> in real time, touring bands from this like world of, of, again, going to shows, talking to human beings would tell you these things. And then you would have your notebook and write down, all right, looks like we're going to try this house in Gainesville or, or this record store or whatever. And I mean, we actually put out an ad in Maxim Rock and Roll that said like, Dolly Seed on Trouble Man Records is looking for shows. Call us. And people actually called and we booked it that way. Like, it's incredible to think of this weird, invisible network that was built out of that world. Right. I think the patience, like I sent a letter somewhere and waited I mean, you send an email and you're sitting there hitting refresh. And you're like, oh my God, it's it's been 15 minutes. And Tracy and hasn't I haven't... emailed me back. I don't know if this is happening. <laughs> I, always, I do always the joke about going to the mall. You just told your friend you were going to the mall and you were seeing the two o'clock movie. You showed up. And, and if you, you didn't show out. up, <laughs> if you didn't show up, you didn't go to the movie. Yeah. And well, Tracy didn't show up, you know, flake. Um, and you saw her on Monday. But I, I think the <laughs> that part of the the patience of it I think let me let me or maybe you as well. F- I don't know, like have separation of things. Yeah. Like how many devices are in front of me right now? Three. <laughs> like that's ridiculous. Uh, but that's the, I feel like the that also when you're connecting with those bands, maybe there's a more instead of having three things in front of us, it's just yeah. a face. And even my favorite thing about my record collection is a lot of my like '90s records have letters. So it would be like somebody oh, from Built so to Spill cool. or Seaweed or Archers of Loaf or Super Chunk. Like when I got notes back, I didn't know what to do with them. I wanted to save them. So I would just tuck it inside records. So when I go back to play certain records, I'll be like, oh, Mikey from Fits of Depression. What I forgot about this drawing. He made this little character. Oh, that's cool. And there it is again. That's so, oh, that's a great memory. And like receipts. You don't. Oh, yeah. Receipts. Um, Like these funny little tactile things that. Now I'm like, God, I guess I can do a search in my email for that one word and maybe it will pull up that conversation. <laughs> it's it's not nearly as sexy. Yeah. No. You, you mentioned the distro stuff earlier and I think working at one, I think the mentioning the importance of what those did for your local store to actually have that one copy of yeah. that Lookout record was pretty, I think, a monumental task. And the amount of people that it took. For sure. And we actually, we had lunch or dinner yesterday with a customer from the record store who came in when he was in high school. And he's been my friend this whole time. And like, he didn't have money. He didn't eat lunch and would save his lunch money and come in and be like, all right, I've got $6. What should I buy? And I'd be like, well, there's this new, you know, maybe it was Ass Factor 4 or maybe it was... uh, I don't know, whatever new ebullition or maybe it was a cringer single, like whatever goofy, emo-y, pop, punk, raspy thing, you, you maybe will want to buy this. And so I was like his drug dealer, like, I, I need my fix. Right. What seven inch should I buy? And like, we did this for for this five or six years I worked at the store. And like, I never really thought that much of it. And then you have a network of kids who through the internet are still friends with me. And I'll be like, no, you don't understand. Like the path of being like sort of an alternative person, like 
you let me be who I wanted to be and taught me like without judgment. You just listened to what I liked and tried to find more stuff. And like that was a support system that they didn't have at home. Maybe their friends weren't really that into the what they were into and they felt like, what, you like the Descendants? That band's dumb. And we're like, no, it's cool. And here's 10 other bands that right. maybe... And here's some people shopping at the store at the same time that you should talk to because they like them too. And you make friends and then you start putting on shows or maybe you form bands and that network kind of builds out from there. Like, I don't know, when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize you're doing something special. You're just a part of it. And then you realize in hindsight, like, oh shit, that was like a real thing that we all were better people because of. And... um I, I looked back. I didn't realize a lot of it. Like you, I saved stuff just because I think that was like I, you know, right. showing you earlier the math yeah. rock things. I just knew it might be important, but I didn't save everything. But you took photos, but I didn't. I didn't take photos. I have so much regret for that. Really? Because we, we didn't have cell phones with like I have like a handful of things, but it kills me that some pretty amazing, crazy things happened. I have no photos, and and it's, maybe that makes it almost more special that I. Like, I got thrown out of um, an Elliot Smith show for being too loud on this drinking bender with William. Uh, another <laughs> run-in with Blake. Um, I swear I'm a very nice, sane, grounded person, but <laughs> with a lot of alcohol and no sleep, fueled by a friend who's equally as crazy. Right. Uh, funny things happen. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. Like, I, maybe I'd be mortified if I had photos of that day. Like, it's a little softened because I don't have photos of that day, but... Uh, I sort of am okay with not having every second and maybe because when I want to go to shows like I don't have to photograph every minute like you know there are people who have a video right. camera out for the entire set and you're like I don't really want to watch failure through your phone exactly. put down yeah, your freaking phone <laughs> we're in different times yeah, yeah. Did, I think to the you'd moved to Richmond you know there were circumstances you know again right. like changing like a lot happening moving uh did that change the outlook i mean you know hardship sometimes does that yes you can have music you know creating but also it makes you maybe look back and appreciate things a little bit more and start For to sure. slow down like what was that what was that you know situation i think it's only been in these last couple of years where you'll see like an abc no rio res- retrospective of photographs or something um I'm not really sentimental for my past. It's just, it is a, like I did these things and that's cool. But um, I don't, I don't revel in it. Like I don't feel the need to do a reunion show. My relationship with the past is very, um, like I'm proud to have been a part of some things that I think are pretty important. But I don't, I don't know. Like it doesn't hold this weird special it's not an altar for me. And I think when I talk to other people, they're like, whoa, you hung out with these people or you toured with this band? Like, like I don't I don't have this hierarchy of like famous versus non-famous or this moment. Like all of my favorite moments are like not necessarily like the things that people, other people would care about. So like seeing and playing and like basically being brother bands with Garden Variety, like that places higher than the times I've seen Drive Like Jehu or uh, toured with Hot Water Music or whatever. Like, So I, I feel like my idea of the past is sort of like skewed because 
I don't, I don't think my favorite moments are going to be the ones that other people necessarily think are like that cool. I feel like that's similar with your vinyl collection. <laughs> no, you've mentioned yeah. where it's like, it's not a, you're, I don't need every color. Right. It's, I have the record. I'm going to listen to it. Yeah. It's the art or the person who made it that matters to me. And, um, being it's over. not the being able to tell that you have this many records. It's, it, it's, it's like, you're not, you don't have to tell anyone if that makes sense. For sure. Like I, Yes, I collect records. I think we have, I don't know, 8,000 or something in our house. And like, I don't know, I have some people who like go out of their way to make sure you know like just how big their collection is and what it is that they collect. Like I'm just, that's not my thing. Like almost like, I guess being an addict, my fix is hearing things that like make my, my skin tingle. Like, whoa, that crazy Boogaloo Latin song from 1967 is the best thing I've heard all month that is as important to me as my favorite rights of spring song or like I, I'm not just stuck on one time period or one band or one genre. Um, as a music fanatic, I like it all, but I think another component for like, and this is going to sound so emo, but being somebody who was in a very emotionally charged band, like that's a taxing heavy thing to give yourself away to that degree and um this was like before therapy before medicine like i was like a an abused kid and had some pretty like heavy experiences so it was super cathartic to be able to scream into a microphone and sort of take back myself and then that discovery of like i wasn't a gender i wasn't an age i wasn't a weight when you sing and make art, you're just this, you're in time and space in a different world. Like you are out of your body almost. And when you hate being inside your body because you're super unhappy, it's like the best thing ever. And I don't know if you, like, I don't think it gets written about very much, but um, for a time period for Dahlia C. Chose, I was a cutter. And I didn't know I was doing it, but I had like this nervous habit of picking at my arms while I screamed and sang. So I'd literally be pouring blood. Like, it sounds crazy emo, but for a band that started to sound like Velocity Girl and then went down this very different path, I would literally like, ah, I can't remember which show. It was with Grey House and maybe Garden Variety was on the bill too. And they'd call an ambulance. And I was like, why is there an ambulance here? And they're like, uh, look at you. I'm like, oh, oh, I don't remember doing that. Like, singing is that much of a, takes me out of my, my regular world. And um, that is not something I want to revisit per se. Like as special as all of the friends and music and things I was a part of, that person I was, was not healthy. And I was ended up dating a terrible person. And unfortunately they passed away from drug abuse and a very- Was that a divorce? No, somebody else. Um, This was somebody I, I had dated from Olympia. Washington um, and like just a train wreck through my early 90s and panic anxiety became so bad by like the early 2000s that I was like maybe I should talk to somebody about this because I didn't have a band to outlet me and I just felt like a, like a shaken soda pop bottle or something and so like 
fixing myself before I wanted to make art again seemed really important. And when I did my solo record with all the collaborations, like ring that finger, was, right? Uh, was it called ring, ring finger? F- yeah. Uh, that was like my path to rebuilding myself. So I think a big part of not really wanting to revisit that band and some of the things attached to that scene is like, there was like a lot of chemically challenged, troubled kids trying to work through grief and anger. And I also had like a mom with MS and uh, I had lost a brother, like just big stuff that I didn't know how to digest quite yet. So um, I'm super grateful. I had a band to like scream some of that out, but like, do I want to step back into those shoes? Not so much, but like, on the flip side of that, the music I make now, it cracks me up when someone's like, oh, you must be really influenced by 80s, 90s emo, like Brian and Maria. I'm like, man, I don't want to be like, but I was doing it first. I'm old. Because no, you know, like, I know I definitely don't look 20 something, but I don't think people realize quite how old I am. So when they like pitch bands to me, I'm just like, Oh, that is like third wave emo. Yeah. No, <laughs> not influenced. <laughs> but that's the education part I said earlier, you know, about they might know another band or they might. And it's it's this. I mean, this is why I do the site. This is why I do the podcast to just be able to be like, there's a little. It's also, high five you for doing awesome work. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. No, I think it's really great that you found this thing that you love and you're connecting dots and you're telling stories because, as you know, emo is not just this one little tiny thing it's so much more and there's so many shades of it and there's now decades of variations of it right. like it means something different to everybody and you're uncovering each of those tales i'm trying so i'm thanks. trying yeah i think what i was going to say earlier you know that you've had you know if if hardship or things that happen music comes out of it but also reflection and i think i reflect back i had a lot of loss recently and so you reflect differently like i can't get that again so maybe i would have said i'm not going to hang out or i'm not going to go to that no i am going to go because i don't know if that's the last time for sure and i think from saving things it's not hoarding but just being like i feel like i'm more like you saying when you're singing you were in your space and you Mm -hmm. felt it i think now i can like last night at the show i'm like i'm here now Saves the day I've seen for how many times, right. how many years, booked them, like, and now I'm in it again instead of worrying about something else or see, I, I don't know. I think sometimes loss or hardship leads you to do that more. And then you see the kids that are maybe being stupid or, right. and you're like, it's fine. Yeah. Been there, done that. This is just part of the, they'll figure this stuff out too. Yeah. And they don't need to know it now. Nope. You can see that it's, and it's not a overlooking thing. It's more of like, they're going to be fine. Yeah. And maybe that's what our parents were telling us to, you know, when we were fucking off or something, like, (laughs) they're going to be fine. Um, Where we thought it was the end of the world. Right. That's definitely true. It will all be fine, kids. Yeah. But also I think the reflection and you, like, again, being able to sort of be in the moment, but look forward and know, you know, from that and being able to make that change and say, I need to talk to someone. For sure. Because a lot of people don't. Yeah. I mean, it could have been very easy, like, because alcoholism runs in my family, I could have just gone down that path. Like, to really, it's, to me, the bravest thing I've ever done is to 
go, I'm super imperfect and I can be such a better person than what I am now. I'm going to do something about that. Like to decide that you aren't your best self and do something about it and learn from mistakes and try to grow is like, that is much harder than you would think. And it's, I mean, it hopefully is a journey that lasts a lifetime. And hopefully it makes me like more sensitive to anybody like younger than me because you can see like little portions of yourself and go like, okay, I remember when I lost my parents, here's, or sibling or uh, didn't know like from being abused as a kid, what that could affect me and, and how that could snowball into bigger things and being able to help other people. Like, or just show a little bit of patience when you realize like, I don't know what day this person's had or what's going on in their life. So whatever this weird thing is that they're doing right now, like there's probably a lot more like a, the tip of the iceberg and underneath it is that like a continent beneath it of stuff. And that I, you can't necessarily know that it's a 22 year old. Right. Right. But, but, but patience, I think that's a big word. Like the, um, like thinking about that before saying mm-hmm. something or, you know, you're so quick. It's so like moment to moment when right. it's like, sit back for a minute. What's the situation? And I think that doesn't happen, you know, instantly. No. <laughs> oh God, no. <laughs> you no. go on two day benders. <laughs> yes. That, well, it was also, you know, it's a strange time to be in the music industry sort of in its last peak because, um, you know, right before like, well, I guess punk broke while I was working at the record store and realizing like, oh man, like if Helmet is getting signed for like a million dollars or My whatever. My second favorite band ever. Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, hence the poster to the right of us. Right. Um, you know, understanding like, oh, there's a commodity attached to underground music. Did not see that coming. And then people being like, oh, you kind of know stuff. Like I'll slip you a hundred bucks as a major label A&R person if you make me a mix of all your favorite underground bands because they're pilfering anywhere they can possibly go to discover the next thing, the next Nirvana and, um, working at Caroline distribution as a sales rep. Um, what years was that? From 96 to 2002 ish. No, 96 to 2005 or 2006 a while almost a decade yeah almost a decade um and watching this basement scene of like i guess you probably call it second wave emo in my head it's third wave of saves the day and jimmy world um we had vagrant fearless um equal vision probably equal vision uh hopeless uh deep elm for a little bit, yeah, through Mordam. And so as these bands were bubbling up, I was the only salesperson in the whole company wow. from that world. And trying to be the like cheerleader slash translator of like what <laughs> when we were shown a video, like, okay guys, when you see uh somebody who looks like they're almost crying on stage, like this is normal. This is a part of this world. <laughs> And I know it sounds like whiny baby music to you, but like this is very deeply meaningful to people. And um, I know we're a company and you're looking to make money and there is money to be made from this. Um, But more importantly, like 
watching a band snowball like the Get Up Kids or Saves a Day, um, we would have meetings about like how you'd set up a record and will this only just go to mom and pa stores? Is it going to be just the town that they're from and that region? And I was like, no, man, like this band is touring with bigger bands and Jimmy Eat World is clearly on a trajectory that's showing me that the rest of the world is ready for this. So I was the sales rep who was like, okay, I, I think we should pitch this to Best Buy and I think we should bring this to Circuit City and not just have them throw it in the bin, but actually end cap it somewhere. And I know it's expensive and trying to but talk a record the backstory because they don't even know the tours that they were on. That wouldn't even have made sense. Exactly. So like me being the sort of like representation of the DIY basement world that now is suddenly popular or tooth and nail, another right, great example. Tooth and, nail, definitely and oh my God, era. try to explain to a room full of even like the most passionate of people like, okay, so imagine this like biggest hardcore band. There's a Christian version of this and tens of thousands of kids come to see them. Like, and there's a heavier label in the in called Solid State, which also is separate. Like, we also you, did, yeah. yeah. But like, you had to. There's a difference, yeah. And for them to understand, and like, so understanding, no, there's kids you've never seen before, and you won't because you're not going to that church. You've probably never been to church. Going to school in the South, a kid would tell. I met kids that live, grew up there. They could only get the stuff at the Christian bookstore, right? Exactly. And Tooth and Nail was at the Christian bookstore, or I mean from touring and seeing as like a record nerd, like, oh, if you live in the Midwest in these like smaller towns, your record store is Best Buy or Circuit City or right. Walmart. So I know it's not cool to be marketing these records to these places and it seems weird, but You'd not, lose your mind if it was there. Yeah. <laughs> you are changing kids' lives if you put these records in these stores and it, it worked. And so um, Circuit City was the first company that bit. And they took the Saves a Day record. Which one? Um, I guess it would be the first one. Can't slow down or? Yeah. And is that the, the one with them on the couch? That's through being cool. Oh, okay. Through being cool, that I makes think. Makes sense. Um, and so watching that like slow build of like, oh, wait, you you sold through everything you end capped for this band? Because they, I can't remember what big tour they got, but we picked all of the, the circuit cities that that tour was on. And then we did the same thing with the Get Up Kids. And it was just like, I told you guys, like, I know I just seem like a poorly dressed indie rock kid coming into the office every day, but this music matters to people and it deserves to be everywhere. And once it started selling, it was like, all right, kid, what else you got? And then they realized like, okay, we're the only one that can get Discord into chain stores. All right, Wilson, what do you got? What do we do with this? I'm like, well, this band minor threat. This Start is an there. important classic record. Every one of your chain stores should have that record. So I kind of would make these classic like back catalog lists of, of Discord or I think pretty early on we lost Epitaph, but all those other labels had enough totally backstory stuff that I was like, you don't know who Pedro the Lion is, but I swear, especially in certain regions, this is a really big deal and you should absolutely stock these records. And sort of spreading that gospel to the other sales reps because at the time, and that's how I ended up in Richmond, I had the Mid-Atlantic region. So um, my areas were covered with all of these things. Totally. But then sort of teaching all the other people who I worked with, there's like, I don't know, 20-some sales reps. Like, no, like this record should be in the Austin market or in Florida or whatever. Like, they're, because of hot water music, spreading their 
planting their seed and it growing exactly. like weeds. Like there are a whole world of kids who care about this. And from there, the pogos of the world or whatever, like that's how this works. And because nobody else was tapped into that world, that was pretty much my role at Caroline. That's amazing. So it's like no one would ever know that, but it was great to like maybe deli seed nobody cared about, but I got to be a part of that world and the next generation in a pretty special and meaningful way that, and even like when Roman went on to do Radio 4 and we had Astroworks, so getting to work his like next life as Radio 4 and break that record and seeing them get on like a television commercial for, I think it was a car commercial. And Astroworks had its own yeah subset in life and scene. Exactly. I mean, to break electronic music to the masses, you know, like Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim. And then even like as DFA was starting to bubble up and then the Rapture just moved in and like they didn't know anybody. So Did you do V2 or they were part of a Mm-mm. major? I don't think so. Okay. Maybe early on. Because V2 was that same time period. Right. I don't I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but because we were, even though we weren't like Discord's main distributor, we were still their main distributor into the chains because Mordam and the smaller distros didn't have the relationship. that relationship. And so we played a really curious middleman role to get some of these like breaking rancid or no effects. Like weird records that, as a music nerd, it's so intoxicating to help bring music to the masses that you really believe in. Right. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a genre I like, but no, you knew that I knew that react. somebody cared about it. I think it's sort of like the you were the pl- the playlists were the record stores, and you were the person putting it into that playlist. Now, the, if you're relating it to today, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like and or regional ones or knowing that that playlist is huge in Florida, putting that song in that or that yeah. that's what that was and it was a physical thing that had to move and go somewhere and be produce, produced. I think that's crazy for people like the amount of people it took to so get many. something. So when Hundreds. people when people say like, you know, to have a band break so many things had to go right down to that truck had to be on time. Yeah. They had to get their product <laughs> from the pressing plant to us in time to get it to the store. Because Circuit City the tour. also bought refrigerators and yeah. Whirlpool was on time. And so you like, it's that same. And truly pitching records to those places <laughs> that really were used to like the top level R and B pop, right? Like the mainstream of most mainstream good luck trying to pitch minor threat to this world and getting success. Like, I don't know how I did that, but yet they trusted me. It took like slowly, like you one got a win a on time, the board. And then once you one, got a win on the board, it's almost it like one, going. one yeah. guy with one, he signed one amazing band 25 years ago. He'll still get an A and R job. If he signed totally. X band, <laughs> you getting that win for sure. They're like, well, you know, Tracy got that other record that did really well. She well. was right about that. Yeah, let's see if this will work. Yeah, and you giving bands a shot like that, it isn't as easy as pressing send and having right. it go up on Pure Volume or MySpace or or, or MP3.com or Napster or now Spotify. It took these certain people. Yeah. So through the '90s, early 2000s, that was my everything, and then um, I jumped over to Fontana for a couple years. 
and uh, Universal Music Group is obviously huge. Huge. And it was a very different vibe. Um, I had to get very familiar with things like smooth jazz and R&B. And uh, it was a much more urban-centric product base. And I was creating like uh, cruise ship prizes and doing like smooth jazz tours. Circuit City, City was sponsoring and then there'd be like a compilation unique to their store and then you could win like this cruise ship experience for those same artists. Right. So it was like the things I learned from my DIY world being applied to whole other genres. And then um, that is when the digital music world really took over and physical copies started to die. And I learned pretty quickly like there was probably no future and then I got let go. Wow. What year was that? Uh, so mid 2000s. And I tried one last hurrah of starting a distro with the sort of remnants of what was Mordam Lumberjack. And then it became like an independent label collective. Oh, and right. It had a tragic ending and a CFO who was a drug addict and was taking all of our money and buying drugs. And in one of his weird uh, hazes of being on painkillers, he fired all of us because he found out that we called his parents and said i think your kid might die if you don't get here and he keeps disappearing and like he's not himself so um maybe you could help your son out because we can't we don't know how to fix this wow and he found out about that and fired us all and then the labels had to decide like do we go on? Do we trust this guy? Because he has been paying us. What labels with the doghouse, right? Was that one? Um, so at that time, like Sympathy was the one. Uh, Asian Man. Oh, Asian Man. Okay. Was part of that crew. Um, Magic Bullet was a oh, part right. of that. Magic and that's Bullet. like my connection for the Ring Finger record coming out through that was that. Um, it was uh, God Gilead and... What years was that? So you said late 2000s? So, Kenny, that was 10 years ago, right? So, so t- that makes sense. Because if you were... No, earlier than that. 2007 maybe is when it started. But if you did, I'm just saying um, if you, and this is totally fine, we're going to, if you did Caroline for 10 years or nine years, right. that's 2005. And How long was, was Fontana? Like, Fontana was just like a year. Oh, so two. a year, so six, seven. Okay. So somewhere in the mid 2000s. Um, and I mean, I loved it and we grew it pretty quickly, but then like I did not see a pain pill addict taking us all down. And he was like hawking our like warehouse equipment for pills. Like it was bad, bad. And then it divided a lot of record labels because they had to pick between the people who they couldn't see we're doing important things for them, like selling their product and marketing their product right? versus the guy who writes the checks. So a lot of them sided with that. Wow. And then that, that was, uh, that pretty much ended my career in music. That was when I was like, you know what? I think so this what have you been doing the last way 10 years? out. That is a great question. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel like I was put on this earth to do one thing and that was to help like smaller bands. That is, as a music fanatic, like it's the best high in the world to see like your little like pet project grow into this amazing thing. That's like a thousand people like to watch Coheed and Cambria to this day, pack out thousands of people totally. in the room singing every word to every song. You're like, this is beautiful. Whether you like that band or not, seeing that many people made happy by those songs, like, yes, this is why we do it. So, um, 
I kind of had to do some reinventing, and I worked for Honer, the music instrument company. Right. I was a product planner and uh, like a customer service person there for five years, and it was still kind of music related, and I worked with lots of musicians. And then uh, they moved to Nashville when they got bought out by another company, and I did not want to move to Tennessee. <laughs> So I had to start my career over one more time, and now I work in the wine and spirit industry in compliance. Cool. So now I'm a legal expert for eight states and uh, setting up the products we sell in the states. That requires like back-end stuff, but distribution is distribution, whether it's records exactly. or wine. So it all kind of works the same. Surprisingly, so our office is in Virginia. Uh, I represent the New York and New Jersey market. So I deal with a lot of people from New York and New Jersey. And I think through mostly email, that idea like, oh, like they have a very specific idea of what Virginians are. And, you know, the peel me a grape sugar sort of Southern Belle thing. Or and a then, giant smokestack in yeah, Richmond. And then like the first time they talked to me on the phone and they're like, oh, wait. I love and that. And I was like, oh, surprise. Jersey, Jersey. motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. I, I lived in Stytown. Um, you know, once you get, um, Mortise, a cab in full, like metal, um, elf costuming a cab in New York city at rush hour, like you can do anything <laughs> like dealing with the most like impossible band, like every crummy tour situation where things go wildly wrong, like getting paid in rotting oranges and figuring out how are you going to eat that night? Like, there is nothing you can throw at me now in a corporate office that's going to make me go, oh, my gosh, I need to go home early. This is too much. It's just, <laughs> like, I'm good. I got this. What, I love that. Whatever fire you got going on, give me three. Yeah. We'll, we'll handle it. It's fine. I like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Little did I know that my, my career in DIY would be leading up to this very weird moment. Yeah. <laughs> and then for some states... You have to register your product in paper form and you have to turn in the wine labels. And so you're basically building fanzines of complex paperwork like you would fill out if you were banned touring right. in Canada or contracts or whatever. So like all these contracts look very familiar. And then I'm like cutting out wine labels and pasting them on. And yes, I can do this on my computer. I'm not totally clueless, but I like the fact that I can do like scissor tape yeah. photocopy. So I'm I'm sort of building fanzines for like the state of Ohio to register product. And it's super cozy. I'm like, oh, no, you have 10 products. Like most people would be so bummed to have to set up 10 wines that will take like an hour of cutting and pasting. And I'm like, yes, please. I love that. Yeah. If I could bind this, I'm going to sell it at the next show. It's going to be great. Like I love making little wine fanzines. Or I got a buddy fanzines. at Kinko's. Right. There's always a buddy at Kinko's. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky to have a, a photocopier in my house growing up See? to be able to to do these things myself. Fax machine. Yes. That's that was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Second phone line? We had multiple because both my parents worked at home. Wow. I know. We had the first, like all of the early Apple computers. My mom's a desktop publisher. So I had no interest in any of these things. I was like, mm. and my parents went through a bankruptcy almost, like towards the end of high school. So I knew I couldn't afford college even. Oh, wow. If, like I got it accepted to a, like a scholarship for NYU poetry. And like I blew it all up because I was like, mm, this music thing, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> Little did we know. Whew. 
whoops. So yeah, no, no college, but um, I know how to, you know, get a room full of people to show up to a show, and then you know, if I have to play a show or figure out where that band's going to stay that night and feed them, make a vegan and a meat eater happy. Yes, I can do those those two. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to mention? What you what what I forget? Gosh. Um, we didn't talk at all about like the early bandy stuff or influencers or the the Rockland County years of Delusied. You've mentioned that before in interviews, right? Have you? Probably not. Okay. Rockland County doesn't get talked about a whole lot. <laughs> but because um, where I grew up in New Jersey is Bergen County. And then right there right is the border the to New York. And there's Rockland County. So um, it wasn't that crazy. Like most people think we're a Jersey band, but we were really, I guess, more of a Rockland County band. Um, Brian Getkin and Darren Galgano were in um, At All Cost, which was like a, I guess before like metalcore was a thing, it was like a very fine line in for a little while there between mm-hmm. hardcore and thrash. And that was their thing. And then Chris Skelly was in Selective Outrage. So, I mean, I guess that's probably why we ended up on a lot of hardcore bills pretty early on because that was sort of like a, a network that everybody knew mm-hmm. myself included, even though that I liked a lot of other genres, we were on so many. I mean, why <laughs> it's funny now to think about like vision of disorder and us being on the same bill, but it happened. Totally. Yeah. So I, I think um, that again, that like crossover of like, even though we started from early roots of hardcore and, and metal we we overlapped in so many of those other circles and for the early 90s like these bills would be pretty like a, a, you know six different genres on one thing right. so you might have like Weston is like the funny pop punky kind of band and then you might have a screamo band and then you might have like a beat down hardcore band and maybe in between there was like a like jangle pop or a band that sounded like super chunk or somebody who clearly sweated the San Diego scene, which was kind of us towards the end there. Mm-hmm. But um, like all those different genres coming together in one room and maybe everybody had like a distro. So you would get all these records for sale on the back of the, the venue. Right. And it wasn't just like only straight edge. It was like, Oh yeah, we, we played, I guess there was a Weston one Oh eight Dahlia seed show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, there wasn't like some like like tiny bubble that you only stayed in at that right. point. You were just happy to have an all ages venue with something going on in wherever Pennsylvania. Like the kids of that town were excited; they didn't care whatever genre. Like you, they got out of the house for a night, so yeah, there was none of that elitism of. Well, I only listen to bands that sound like Jawbox or whatever. Like. It was like, I'm 16 and I will do anything to get out of my parents' house for a couple hours and be around other weirdos and maybe I can put on my big pants and my chain wallet or my Riot Girl dress. Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about Riot Girl. Um, <laughs> Riot Girl didn't really happen until like towards the tail end of Dahlia Seed. So like it wasn't an influence for me. And then as a non-Riot Girl, that like, almost being punished because everyone just assumed if you were a woman in a band, you were Kathleen Hanna and you were going to scream at them about having a penis right? or whatever they thought in their mind, obviously bikini kills a thousand things. And that's not really just what that band did is 
talk about gender politics all the time. Um, that assumption that like you were an angry woman who and I was, and I probably did yell at their face because there was that phase of the band where I did just walk around the floor and scream at people. It was still not a riot girl band. And people just had that mentality. Like if they just saw me walk onto a stage, half the room could walk out on certain shows because they just, they didn't want to deal with that. And they'd be right. like, oh, they're probably one of those like dumb, dumb riot girl bands. I can't take seriously. They hate me. They don't like men. So I'm not going to watch them. And then like you'd play two songs and they slowly creep in right. like, oh, wait, what's happening in here? <laughs> and to learn like, oh, yeah, you can be a woman in a band and you are not necessarily guaranteed to be a riot girl. Like that is their own little world, just like straight edge right. or grindcore. Like that is their own little thing. And not every person who plays music that has a vagina is going to be a part of that club. Surprise. Yeah. And, you know, it was very weird to have, like, Riot Girl be this very powerful, moving thing for all sorts of people. Like, it's a huge, important inspiration. But when it was happening in the middle of it, it actually did a lot of us a disservice. And uh, you had to win people over twice as much because they just assumed, like, you carried the baggage of that political world. And it was, like, not about art. It was going to be about politics. And... No, I just wanted to make art. Just wanted to rock. I just wanted to sing. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I never want to lose that curiosity and that hunger to connect. And I think, you know, we still will see bands play and having them occasionally stay at our house and still like sitting up until three in the morning on our pot porch talking like uh, Ghost just stayed with us. And like their set was great. But honestly, like sitting on the porch and talking about their lives and falling in love for the first time or moving in with a partner for the first time. Like that's the real stuff. Yeah. Like a great song is cool too, but like the things behind the person who made that song happen, like that, that song wouldn't happen without this person and those life experiences and getting to know those things. And especially in this world, you don't always have like super social, comfortable people who are like, even though they're in a band, they're not always outgoing so you're digging in like socially as well. Like you sometimes have to kind of pull it out of people. So where they don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about themselves. Like, I don't know, you know, after a show at, you know, uh, at one in the morning, like their guard is down a little bit more and you can get real and you can talk about what it's like to age out in a scene, like just have real conversations about like non music stuff and, I don't know. I think that's beautiful. Like, I don't ever want to give that up. Like, putting out records and making art's important, and I'm glad I still get to do that too. But I think the roles you play is just being a fan, and whether it's what you do is podcasting or running a record store, or even if you're housing a band, like, those roles are like the important glue to make that work. I love it. Like, it's, it's so much bigger than just the band itself. Like, we are a family. High five Perfect. again. <laughs> Good job. Cool. Good job to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course.
Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com